Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I haven't said this on an intro in about eight episodes, but yes, I am indeed your host, Finn Melanson. I'm realizing that with each passing episode, new listeners come on and they should know that. So what up? Anyways, I had Eric Schranz on the pod a couple of weeks ago, and he made a great point that the best guests have opinions, that they willingly share and take clear stands on the topics at hand. And that is why I'm excited about this episode, because the guest checks that box for sure. Uh, Jack Kenzel is a mountain runner currently based on the road. I think he's just crisscrossing the U.S. right now, seeking out the coolest mountains to run and ski. So I think being on the road currently is an accurate description. He came on my radar after setting the hut to hut traverse in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, one of the most prestigious FKTs in the U.S., and also for some of the social media that he puts out there around the sport. His commentary really demonstrates, in my opinion, his original thinking on a lot of issues. And I think that in particular is why I wanted to have him on the pod. In this conversation, uh, it's pretty wide ranging. We talk about how technology has given us the ability to race when we're ready and in a disaggregated fashion. Um, We talk about uh, the athlete sponsorship landscape and the status quo for repping products on social media and what might need to change there. Uh, He gives us an overview of the Northern New England mountain running scene. We talk about why athletes will need to specialize as the sport gets more mature and competitive and why Americans should start to embrace uh, personal project slash FKT culture even more. Jack is a true mountain athlete and he brings a lot of cool perspective from outside of our bubble to make a lot of his points. Before we dig in, a couple of requests. First, the newsletter is live. So to subscribe, and I think you'll like it, go to finmelanson.com. There's a button right there above the fold on the homepage. Subscribe there. I apologize in advance. That site uh, is my personal site from a while back. We're going to work on it to make it more applicable to the podcast. But for now, subscribe there. Second, If you haven't submitted a rating and review of the podcast yet, please do in your preferred podcast player. It helps the show get discovered. We're not running any ads right now. uh, So anything we can do when it comes to word of mouth is huge, but also just helping to raise our profile in these feeds. So thank you in advance. Let's dig in. I'm stoked about this one. Welcome, Jack. Where are you coming from? Uh, my buddy's place in San Francisco. Oh, nice. Have you yeah. been able to run up in the headlands yet? No, I haven't yet. I mean, he's down in Palo Alto. Um, and uh, no, I haven't. We went down to Santa Cruz yesterday. I think today I'm just going to run south of Palo Alto. Um, I had no idea how kind of how big the Bay Area is. It's uh, huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I thought it was just gonna be like a five minute drive from Palo Alto to like the headlands there. It's like not, it's like an hour. Um, yeah. And I think you have to go over, I think the golden gate bridge is like a $10 toll or something, you know, ridiculous. Seriously. Yeah. Some, someone told me that. Um, wow. That's an incredible uh, gatekeeper mechanism right there. 10 bucks is a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Have you, have you been up there? Have you ran the headlands I, at all? Or? I went and uh, I went and DNF to the uh, TNF 50 the now, oh, really? now defunct TNF 50 back oh, in like wow. 2019. Oh, shit. Um, beautiful area. 
yeah, I totally underestimated because I was like coming from Utah. I was like, oh, sea level, thousand foot climbs. Yeah. This is a piece of cake. And I just got a big piece of humble pie. Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I it's just, it you know, it's humidity and they're just relentless ups and downs and like the, the descents into like Stinson beach and stuff are pretty technical and I'm not a really good oh, technical really? descender. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. But yeah, I'm sad they got rid of that race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, I am so stoked we're here today. Uh, obviously we had like a 15 minute pre-interview call that went like an hour because we just yeah. had a lot of ideas to, to go back and forth on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel like we just got to capture that for the audience today. So I Sweet. figure yeah. we can start with just like, I think because a lot of people, I should preface this by saying, I only discovered you because one of my buddies, Joey Campanelli must've liked one of your Instagram <laughs> posts. And then the good old Instagram algorithm served it up to me yeah. in my like discovery feed. I'm like, Whoa, who's this guy? He's doing some cool shit. And, uh, and then just DM'd you. But I think a lot of people might not be familiar with you. So yeah. could you sort of give like an elevator pitch on, uh, who you are, how you got into trail running and like what you're up to now? Um, yeah. So, uh, from, from Northwestern Connecticut, uh, grew up, uh, with friends kind of hiking around a lot, uh, just in the woods, um, and just, kind of loved hiking and ran some cross country and track in high school, but yeah. never was, was very good. Uh, and then kind of training for the Navy a little bit. I got, I got more into running, was running more regularly, ran a marathon, ran Marine Corps marathon, yeah. um, back in college. And somehow I just kind of started getting interested in ultra running, uh, ran handful of ultras back in 2019 out to the hundred K distance, um, mainly out, mainly out West, a couple in, couple in Utah in your, in your neighborhood mm -hmm. there. And then, mm -hmm. uh, um, 2021 focus more on FKTs up in the, up in the Northeast. Um, so I, I basically starting in 2020, I tried to break out what were like the five top FKTs in the Northeast. So I thought that was going to be the Pemi loop, uh, the great range traverse, uh, which is in the Adirondacks and upstate yeah. New York, yeah. uh, the hut traverse, which is in the, in the whites in New Hampshire, the presidential traverse also in the whites. And then I'm missing one. Oh, the devil's path in Southern yep. New York in the Catskills. Yep. yep. Um, and so the first one was the Pemi loop, which I did in 2020. And I went up there with zero recon, like zero idea what I was doing, never having you on sighted it. I on sighted And I like, hadn't even run in, in, out in New England outside of Connecticut, like ever. And so I was like, you know, I, I, if you read, Jordan Fields is the one who has the record still. I mean, I, I you know, big surprise. I, I didn't get it. Um, and if you read Jordan's trip report, I mean, Jordan started off on a training run and then just like was going so fast. He just decided to run the record. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, <laughs> this is going to be easy. This is going to be a joke. Um, and uh, it was not, it was, it was very hard. Um, and I ended up, I ended up setting the unsupported record. I mean, really Jordan wasn't even supported. He just ran with someone initially because it was a yeah. training run. So was, yeah. I was eight minutes off his time. And then, uh, and then after that, I was like, you know what? I really need to go back and like take each of these efforts very intentionally and uh, really train the course uh, before I, before I go up there and race. Um, and another thing I was looking at was, was looking at some FKTs out West. I noticed how, uh, like on the grand Teton, like Andy Anderson, park ranger out, you know, I think he was in, in the Tetons, how he had the record on the grand. And like, um, it was just, I just found it interesting that someone with like, not a ton of, 
what I saw, like a ton of like mountain racing, like it wasn't like huge on like the mountain racing scene, but like had taken down this huge um, kind of FKT. And I think a lot and my, my, my takeaway, I'm sure Andy's like a, a super, super fast, fast dude was like, Hey, look, like this is what, you know, kind of practicing these, these efforts a lot can get you. Um, and so I was like, I just tried to like kind of replicate that. And, um, in my mind, like try to like punch above my weight class just by practicing these efforts so many times. Uh, and so, yeah, so first was the devil's path and, uh, I took that and then, um, great range traverse in upstate New York, which I took. And then Ryan Atkins subsequently took back two months later, uh, and then the Prezi and then the, um, hut traverse. And then the last thing I did, uh, I talked to Andrew Drummond up there, who if anybody's trying to look into the, the Northeast running scene yeah. in New Hampshire running, which scene, we're going to talk is, about, by the way, what's that, which we're going to talk about, by the way, yeah, Drummond is definitely one to check out. And, um, he had done, he had raced the hundred miles of the Appalachian trail in the white mountains, yeah. uh, back in 2020. And, uh, I was like, wow, that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. It's a super technical hundred miler, uh, with like 34,000 feet of gain. And so. I tried to go out and, and do that, uh, kind of supported, you know, race style essentially. Um, and I ended up dropping really, I dropped about like mile 70. It was like 75 by the time I got off the trail, just cause my feet just kind of fell apart. Uh, just kind of like trench foot and stuff. So, um, it was extremely painful to run on, yeah. uh, but yeah, that was, well, that's kind of my summary of my mountain history. No, I love it. So we're, and we're going to, by the way, we're going to have a whole a whole section of this conversation dedicated to the FKT culture in the U S because I feel like you have a lot to talk about there. One thing that caught my mind that you just mentioned is that you served in the Navy, which is really cool. And I'm trying to think there's a couple prominent people in our sport that have a military background. I, I know like Jason Schlarb comes to mind. Mm. I want to say think he served Matt in Daniels, Matt, Matt Daniels, Daniels yeah. Jason Schlarb was in the air force. I think I know Jim Walms oh, also in the air force. Yeah. Is there anything in your military background that you think serves you well for ultra running and a lot of these like long distance efforts? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I think, um, a lot of the tools that I, I kind of like picked up in the Navy, um, r- really, really kind of, really kind of helped. Um, I think a lot of the, a lot of the stuff we do in the Navy is, uh, is fairly challenging, uh, that I was doing. And, um, I feel like, the biggest thing I took away was I think a lot of people like look for kind of techniques for like mental toughness and stuff like that. And the biggest thing I took away from my time in the Navy was there's just, there were just no, there were no mental toughness techniques. There's no like secret. It's just like, sometimes things are just, are just difficult yeah. uh, and they're unpleasant and they're, they're not fun. And there's really no like secret or like magic trick. And like that, that to me was like the most liberating thing I ever, I ever kind of learned. Um, because once you realize that there's like no trick, you know, like everybody's on the same plane as you and it's just who just like puts their heads down and just kind of grinds through it. Um, and that's all it kind of comes down to. I think before, uh, when things were, you know, to get challenging, I, you know, try to look for a trick or a technique or something. And yeah, like maybe that stuff, like, you know, meditation, like certainly is huge. And I, I use that a lot and visualization. I use that a ton and, you know, breathing, but like, that's definitely, that's like 1%, you know, 99% of it is just, it's just grinding. Um, and so that's, that was kind of like the most, the biggest thing I took away. And I, I use that, you know, every time I, I do something hard, it's like, you know, something's really challenging and that's just kind of, that's kind of the way it is. Um, by the way, that's, that's a hot take that like meditation and visualization is only 1% of it. Yeah. 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 I think so. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we're gonna we'll say that for another podcast. Okay, I'm really curious to know what is exciting you most about our sport right now because if anyone takes a look at your Instagram, you have really awesome write-ups and almost every single write-up includes some perspective on our sport. And I encourage people to check that out in the show notes after this episode concludes. But yeah, what's exciting you most right now? Dude, well, thank you. Um, I think uh, first is like how it's just kind of the upward trajectory of the sport, especially when it comes to competition. Um, I think athletes are just taking competition way more seriously now. Um, I think what one do you mean thing by that? Kind of, we kind of talked about a little bit um, before is like athletes are starting to become more specialized uh, kind of in their disciplines and uh, training is becoming uh, much more rigorous. And we just see course records constantly falling. And I think it's com- coming to a level of competition that's kind of our level of professionalization that's kind of, you know, not close to road running, but kind of starting to head that way, um, which I think is, which I think is really cool. Uh, And then the second kind of second major thing that's kind of exciting me right now is how technology has just allowed people to race in a much more um, disaggregated fashion. Um, So one, one kind of thing is one kind of thing that I'm passionate about is, um, I think if you went back to the beginning of time yeah, and you handed someone a GPS watch where you can confirm like exactly where you were and how long you ran for and everything else, I don't think it would be incredibly obvious for everyone to race at the same time, you know, to race, mm. uh, when, when not everyone is maybe ready for competition, uh, when the weather isn't great. I mean, the level, the number of like the number of events we have in the United States and the number of competitive athletes we have competition is, is pretty diluted at trail races. Uh, so I think a lot of times, especially among elites, athletes are, are, are gunning for a course record. And with things like Western States, it just comes down to the temperature that day. Um, which is, I mean, Jim is, Jim Walmsley is obviously incredibly fast, but the finishing times largely come down to the temperature. And it's like, I feel like we can kind of, we don't all have to race at the same time. Uh, and we can use technology to kind of, uh, maximize competition and make it more accessible for more people. I Uh, love that. I love that. And, but I want to go back to the first point first. Can you talk about, so you're saying that like we were with each year that goes by, you're noticing athletes doing a better job of preparing themselves for the sport and maybe being less of a generalist and more of a specialist when it comes to particular events, maybe talk about this from a historical standpoint, like the eras of athletes. And like what you see people doing differently now than they were prior. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember, uh, there's some race there. I think it's a road ultra in like from like maybe like Perth to Melbourne. I don't even know in, in Australia, um, like a multi-day effort. And I remember kind of reading about it and reading how initially like athletes would race it run during the day and then sleep at night. And then this like, you know, sheep herder showed up who was used to like running all night, chasing sheep. And, uh, his kind of take on the race was like, I'm just going to run 24 seven and just like not sleep, you know, sleep yeah. very little. Yeah. Um, and it's like today it's like, that's like kind of obvious. It's like, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't sleep a ton, you know, you kind of prioritize um, kind of moving forward. But I think just as a sport kind of comes on, there's just um, more kind of experimentation. So like, whereas back then you had this, this sheep herder uh, was, <laughs> you know, winning this race. And then like, I think, there was this evolution where you had, you know, I don't want to discount athletes in the nineties and two thousands, but I think training was just more, uh, 
kind of disorganized, you know, people just liked kind of being in the mountains, you know, doing lots of big days out, feet. accumulating a ton of time on feet, and then they'd go and, and go and race. And then now you see athletes are incorporating kind of lots of, you know, some big days out with some more kind of like focused uh, intensity kind of training, you know, borrowing some stuff uh, from road running increasingly, you know, post as like elite, as trail running becomes more kind of accepted uh, yeah. in the athletic community of more kind of post-collegiate athletes kind of prioritizing this over road, uh, more younger athletes coming into the sport. Um, so, I mean, those are kind of. Yeah. To your point in this, this was like a, a Jason Coop podcast episode, maybe a year or so ago. And he talks about how, when he first got into the sport back in like 2019 or 2009, it was sometime around then as a coach, he had to like sell really hard this value proposition of coaching. Like a lot of these athletes wanted to like go at it on yeah. their own and like, I'm just going to run a lot each week and that's it. And uh, he just talks about how like, you know, even just 10 years ago, selling the value proposition of coaching was like a tough sell. And now obviously it's becoming more common, but I think that's to your point, good evidence of like how far we've come in a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I know it, it's incredibly exciting when um, most of the time at, at races guys are going for you know everyone's going for course records which is which is super exciting um, yeah. yeah 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 well and i think i want to save the, the this comment you have on disaggregated competition yeah, opportunities yeah. and uh competing kind of when you are peaking on your own terms i want to save that for the fkt part of this conversation because that's fascinating and i think that that really could be the future but first you you've had some Instagram posts recently where you talk about the athlete sponsorship landscape and your takes there. Uh, yeah. You do say that it's a net good because it allows athletes to train full time to max their potential. And yeah. I think I agree, but where do you see this whole landscape going too far and maybe not serving a good purpose? Yeah. I kind of have like three uh, major issues with it. And if I were to list them kind of in like decreasing you know, they, they becoming more pet peeves of mine. Yeah. I think the first one that, uh, that kind of bothers me. That's, that's kind of indefensible is, is athletes marketing products that really aren't necessary, uh, for success. And I think a lot of people, new people getting into the sport, like don't know what you need. Um, and you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that good, but I can tell you like, all you need is a pair of shoes and like something to eat while you're running and maybe a way to carry it. Like that's, that's really when it comes down to it. And if you want to like record your stuff, throw it online, periodize your training a little bit more, maybe a GPS watch, like that's it. Like there's all this, all the other extraneous stuff that's being sold. Um, and that's everything from, from supplements to CBD creams to, um, to, I mean, I personally have a gripe with the, the aura rings and, and whoop straps. I mean, whoop straps, I don't think they do anything. Um, I I'm, I'm very big into listening to my body, developing that kind of sense. Um, and I, I think those, those straps are, are ineffective and they give people, uh, probably a poor representation of how they're, how they're feeling right now. I don't, I don't think that technology is quite, quite where it needs to be, uh, for people to be basing all their training off of that. Um, and then I, I think the, the second, the second kind of gripe I have is just how, how people transfer their, their brand loyalties, uh, just so fluently. Uh, and to me that indicates, you know, people, they're sponsored athletes that know they're not marketing the best product. I mean, this is their job. 
Um, unfortunately, there's there's a monetary aspect uh, to it that's that's pretty prominent. And you know, you have you have a, a brand that just doesn't have as as good technology, doesn't have as good gear. You know, they can just pay an athlete more uh, to to get them to use their stuff. Uh, and the big problem that I have here is I just I just can't I can't trust anyone. Um, you know, I'd like to be able to look uh, to prominent athletes in the community and uh, look at the gear that, that they're using and think like, okay, this is, you know, this is a, a valid gear recommendation. Look at the things they're saying. But I mean, I honestly, I honestly can't. Uh, and to some extent that brings me into my third one, which is the, the most pet PV and, and the least kind of, least kind of, I don't know what, I mean, Bowman talks about all the time, like these, you know, American reactionaries who are like, oh my God, you know, trail running. I just want to like be alone in nature and, you know, kind of this like American sense of, you know, it's like purity of trail sure. running that the loneliness of, of the long distance runner. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, but to me, it's like, I don't want to go on social media and just get like bombarded by advertising. It's like, there are advertising already built into Instagram. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, especially I find this with trail runners and like less, less with the climbing community. Like I follow a lot of climbers and for some reason, trail runners, there's a lot of like, I feel like this is ad copy that was like, you know, cut in some brand brand headquarters marketing office sent directly to the athlete and then plugged into the Instagram description. It's like, if, if an athlete has some sort of recovery regimen or some sort of recovery tool that they use, it's like, that is like fantastic. But, you know, I think in an, uh, my fantasy world that would like be presented along with like other recovery techniques in like a yeah. holistic kind of like study of like how this athlete recovers. Not, it's just like, here's this like recovery tool. And like, here's some marketing chop that, you know, the, the brand sent me to like plug into my Instagram description. Well, um, so I have a thought there and I, yeah. I'm, I am not a pro athlete for the record, not a pro athlete, not even close, yeah. but I, I'm friends with a lot of pro athletes and yeah. they face this issue. They face this pressure and they're just like, this isn't who I am, but these are the expectations in your opinion. Cause you've been thinking about this a lot. If you're a pro athlete in trail running, you've already kind of mentioned climbing, but what is the playbook that you look to? And what do you think is like a tasteful way to represent these products? Like, and how should they be writing content and just putting yeah. stuff out on social? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think part of it is, <laughs> I don't want to be rude here, but I mean, I was able to do not, not, you know, saying I'm some fantastic runner, but like I was able to do everything I, I did with a full-time job. Granted, yeah. I have, you know, no significant other right now, no kids. Yeah. I have yeah. the least time constraints I could possibly have, but like, you know, part of this is, Hey, I think a brand is going to give you more money. If you more aggressively market their product, it's like, well, how about find another source of income and not just rely entirely on this brand, giving you money. That would be, uh, my, <laughs> my first, my first kind of take on that. And then my second one is, is like, if you still want to present, uh, if you still want to like pursue that my kind of most aggressive marketing strategy, yeah. I think just present what you're using with some like real, with some real information. I think, um, Steon, I never can remember his, how to pronounce his last name. The Norwegian. Solomon guy. Solomon guy. Yeah. The Solomon yeah. Norwegian yep. athlete. I mean, I don't think Morton even pays their athletes, but he had this like awesome little series over the summer at all of his golden trail races where he would like talk about how he like sat down with the Morton team, whatever marketing team they, yeah, or product team, product team. And they like, you know, kind of talked about his personal 
you know, biology and uh, how he could effectively fuel for the next race. And he talked about exactly what his fueling strategy was going to be and how he was mixing, like trying liquids, trying gels. And I read that and I, I personally took a lot away from that. And so I think if an athlete has like, like, let's say you're sponsored by some sort of nutrition brand, um, kind of going through and talking about, you know, your fueling strategy, what's worked for you, the products, uh, that you use or sponsored by, I think there's just maybe could be a little bit more effort. Like I personally, um, for as much like bullshit I post on my Instagram, I take like my voice on social media and like my ability to reach people and like people's time, like very seriously. Mm, and that's a great point. All of everything I post is like very intentional. Um, it's not just like, okay, you know, whatever, you know, people are going to see this, but like, I don't really care what it is. I take my voice and what I post online very intentionally. Yeah, And you know, sometimes I wonder if athletes who are putting out this content don't appreciate how discerning the audience is like, yeah. and I'll just give you an example of a brand like, uh, the cooler brand there, Yeti. I think if you yeah. watch a lot of their yeah. YouTube videos, they're not like shamelessly selling the product. They make a mm. video about some couple on a hiking trip and like the Yeti cooler happens to be in the background. And yeah. of course I notice it, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. unmistakably part of the lifestyle. Yeah. And I'm just thinking to myself, like athletes could do the same thing. Like, yeah, we're looking at the shoes. Yes. We're looking at the, like the, the shirt, like we're yes. looking at the water bottles. <laughs> like I, I'm going to find out what that is. And yeah, you're going to be doing a like, service to this the, is the way I think it is. This is what I, way I think I kind of feel it is with climbers and like, Maybe it's just some like strange confirmation bias I have inside my head, but like, I feel like climbers, you know, their brand affiliations first, they're like, I feel like athletes could be more forward with their brand affiliations. It's yeah. like, Hey, look, like, um, you know, I am sponsored by, you know, ultra, you know, I sat down with the ultra team. Like these are the shoes that we picked for this effort, you know, could be more forward. Like, Hey, look, this is a brand relationship. I'm paid yes. to promote these goods. Um, and then I find with a lot of climbers, like, Hey, look, like they, they have their brand partnerships listed in their Instagram bio. It's, you know, it's, it's clear who they're, who they're affiliated with. And then there's like not a ton of like forcing it down. At least the climbers, I personally follow forcing it down to people's throats. You look at Adam Andres feet and he's yes. got Las Sportivas on and it's like, okay, of course. you know, those are good shoes. You know, Adam Andres is a good climber. Like those are clearly the shoes. If I want to climb hard, maybe the shoes I should, I should look into. Um, yeah. Who are yeah. some other, like, um, cause you've mentioned that the climbing community is, is, and maybe, I don't know where this, where this culture came from, but you, you're yeah. saying that they, they do sponsorship well, at least compared to other industries. Who are some other people that you follow in the climbing community that like runners in our community could take note of and be like, okay, this is a, this is a tasteful way to do this. Um, I have, I have, I have no clue. I can tell you, um, on made, they sponsored Katie Scheid when she ran the hut traverse. Yes. Or not they sponsored, yes, yes, yes. Katie Scheid is, I think is sponsored by on still great athlete, um, by the way. Yeah. And her video on running the hut traverse that I think on produced is fantastic. Yep. It is like, so, so good. It's like put that in the favorite. show notes. Yeah. It's one of my favorite trail running videos ever. Um, and I mean, that's an example of, you know, on, on sponsor that, you know, she's clearly wearing on shoes, but it's, it's, it's super subtle and it's not, it's not over the top. Um, and I, I, I really liked their little documentary they shot. It's really good. So, um, but no, sorry. Yeah. Like as far as climbers off the top of my head, no, I, I think possibly just cause climbing is just a little bit more mature. Yeah. Um, and I think trail running is just a little, a little newer to the scene and still kind of like trying to find its footing. Um, and climbers, I mean, I think climbers were some of, you know, some of the, 
well, I don't, I don't want to say that, but like, you know, climbers, climbers have been uh, sponsored and training independently and kind of living off brand deals, I think for, for a fair bit of time. Those are some of the first outdoor athletes to kind of do that. I just pulled up Adam Andre's Instagram and yeah, basically he puts all of his sponsors in his profile uh, settings there, you know, like the, the header. Yeah. And then yeah. all of his posts are just these like organic posts about him on like some wall climbing. Yeah. It's not like, you know, some like 20% off spring energy or <laughs> Petzl headlamp, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. post where yeah. you're just like, geez, am I looking at like a black Friday deal yeah. from like a, I don't know, but it's, it's cool. It's just very organic. And I think and maybe it's just my personal, you know, I don't know what stupidity, some, something I have going on, but it's like, there are products that I have used that I've like loved and I keep quiet about it. I don't say anything about it because like, I think if I were to say anything about it, it appears like I'm paid to say it. Um, and like, of course I could say like, I'm not affiliated. Um, I'm just like the, the, the way I've gone so far is like, I'm just going to keep, um, you know, consumerism and capitalism entirely out of my trail running experience and like what, what I outwardly post online. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It would be, I mean, it's, it's tough because it's like money is nice, but um, I think there's like a certain purity to like trail running and like, you know, mountain pursuits that I personally like to like to maintain. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's pivot here. I, you talked about Katie Scheid, who's a local New Englander now, I think based in, um, Europe, somewhere in the Alps, yeah. um, but her roots in, in the white mountains. Can you talk a bit about the Northern New England trail running scene? Because yeah, uh, one of the longstanding threads in this podcast is how there's this weird divide between East and West coast running. East yeah. coast running is this big kind of black box, this mystery. It doesn't have as yeah. much media coverage and athletes and fanfare. And yeah, just, to, I, I'd love to know like what you think is cool about it. Why it is the way it is, how it compares yeah. to the West. Just take this wherever you want to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, off the top of my head, um, like why I, one of the major reasons I compete in the Northeast is like, I just couldn't hang at a flat race. Like I'm too big. I think my hips are too wide. I've got too much like muscle mass. I can't get rid of as much as I try as a side note. Like I, when I was training to go into the military, I weighed like 160 pounds. Yeah. I went, I'm six foot one, went from 160. I went all the way up to 220. And then when I started running, I cut all the way back down to 180. And anytime like weight is important, but to like anyone out there training uh, and like thinking about restricting calories to cut that extra weight and come down, I can tell you that every single time I have tried to do that to come below 180, I've gotten injured like immediately. So like my biggest thing now yes. is to just like eat as much as possible, recover as much as possible. And like, that's the most effective strategy for me. And if I try to come down any lighter, I get, I get injured, but just a, a totally, totally random. No, no, that's there. great. That's great. Well, we're going to save that for another podcast get another good talking point there, but okay. So you're saying that like that, but so, that body type serves you well in a rugged I think environment. So. Because I think, cause in the Northeast, you know, things are just, it's, it's, um, I feel like trail running on the West coast as it's currently kind of highlighted in major races mm. is, is so runnable. It's almost like really hilly road running as far as like, um, the technicality and the kind of physicality you need for it. Um, I think you could probably entrain entirely on really steep uh, streets and then go and run, run a course like in California, that's like super runnable uh, single track. 
Whereas, Sonoma, I mean, Western states, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like the East Coast, it's like an entirely different uh, sport in my mind. Like uh, things are so steep and so technical. Um, I looked at the top five steepest climbs on the PCT and um, I, I see, I mean, this is something someone could easily look up, but I think the steepest climb didn't even exceed 20% on the entire PCT. And like, there are sections of the AT that are like in excess of 40%. Like there's many of them. Um, I mean, Hey, just an example on the PEMI, uh, that descent off Garfield is like a yeah, waterfall. Absurd. absurd. Yeah. I mean, there's literally, literally like the down trail. climbing a waterfall. Yeah. Yeah. The trail goes down. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of horrifying. It's just like a jumble of rocks with like water running through it. <laughs> Zero margin for error. Yeah. 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 And it's like very exciting. Uh, the technicality is like incredibly engaging. Um, and it's super cool. And I think also cool about the new England scene is just kind of the history. Um, the Crawford path, I think is like the oldest walking path in the United Where's States. That? The Crawford path from, uh, goes from the Highland center, I guess, Crawford notch. To oh, on the, the AT. Washington. Yeah. yeah yep. On the AT or maybe it goes the entire Prezies. Um, but, uh, yeah, just like the history is fantastic. Um, especially in the whites with the huts is just so cool. And there's just like a really warm, uh, kind of really nice, nice culture there, uh, that I really love. And the trails, um, because they weren't, they weren't graded or maintained, uh, for, for kind of like pack animal travel are just, yeah. they're just straight up the fall line. And they're kind of in a lot of ways, I think probably the route that the first ascensionists and kind of early hikers took where it's like, Hey, look, like it's clear through this super dense brush, just going up the stream. So we're just going to hack the trees back from the stream and we're just going to go straight up the fall line of this hill. And it's just, uh, it's really cool, really, really engaging experience. And I think one of the best part is, is like every course is completely different. So just because you're like fast on the Prezi, like you couldn't just show up the next day at the great range or the a month later at the great range traverse, having never seen it and just onsite it, like, that's just not going to work. Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of kind of training you have to do for each route. And every, every time you kind of put down, is like entirely unique. Um, and each effort is really unique, which is, which is exciting. We're supposed to like, you know, if you have a runnable course, that's 15 miles and 5,000 feet of gain, and it's like super runnable, then the physicality is like basically going to be the same. And you could kind of just like go and just like onsite these efforts with a GPX, but out there it's, it's really, uh, unique and engaging. And I think as, especially with, with fires out West, and with climate change, I think the center of the gravity of the sport is just going to start to shift to the East Coast. Um, one big problem on the East Coast is just there's so much private land. There's so much protected land. It's just much harder to organize a, a race out there. So I think that's what's kind of um, maybe depressed the racing scene a little bit. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, now we, we talk about climate change. I think Northern New England is this great climate resilience area. I think it's yeah. at least going to become more hospitable, especially through the winter as the years go by. You know, I was just talking with my girlfriend, well, we've been talking about it a lot, getting property up in that like Lincoln, New Hampshire, Gorham, New Hampshire, oh, Bethel, yeah. Maine, uh, Burlington, Vermont area, that whole corridor. I mean, there's just great mountains. Yeah. And I think it's just, it'll be a great place to train in the long run and just to compete. But why don't you think the scene has uh, built up a, a larger race presence there? Um you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think, you know, you have more, it's possible because the trails, the trails are just so technical. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't think they they lend as well to kind of the the normal kind of like collegiate scene. There isn't it doesn't really make as much sense to go from kind of collegiate running or marathon road running um, on a you know and then going to like running those trails. It's it's not it's not terribly easy. Where I think it's a little bit easier to make that switch to more technical runnable stuff. Um, I think that's that's potentially one thing. Uh, I think just kind of I mean just totally off the top of my head, there's more, more, more running brands. I feel like have their, have their kind of their training camps, uh, mm. kind of out West. I mean, certainly that might be just because there's more trail running out West, but even on the kind of the road scene, you know, Nike up in Oregon and Hoka right. down in Arizona. Right. Um, and, uh, I think maybe, you know, just the whole center of gravity of the whole kind of like hiking scene, I think is more hiking and mountaineering is more just kind of West coast, focus. And I think people may just be a little bit more on the median person might be a little bit more outdoor orientated, and there might just be a little bit more interest in, in trail running out there. Um, but I mean, there's a huge trail scene in the Northeast. So that really does not explain it. Uh, well, I so love, no, I, I have no clue. Yeah. Uh, well, I love this. I love this conversation thread anytime I have it because, um, like I'm looking at my, I, I host this podcast on this platform called Buzzsprout and it shows you a global map of where the uh, listeners are. And like 85% of it is in like the mountain West California. Like yeah. I have like two listeners in Asia, like three in new England. So like anytime I can paint a <laughs> picture of like what I think is the coolest place for trail and mountain running in the U S I do. And I think that like, yeah, for any yeah. hipsters out there that want to go settle a new trail running location, go to like Northern, Northern New England, go to like Lincoln, New Hampshire and set up no, shop. Go, go to the Adirondacks. If you really want to, you well, know, the Adirondacks too. Yeah. yeah like like Lake Placid area is. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. And like, even, even beyond the whites, I think in technicality, just on average, um, just, just crazy, crazy terrain up there. And I think people also discount the East coast scene because they see mountains that are five, 6,000 feet high, but it's like not that different than it's um, not salt Lake. The prominence is very, probably the very vertical similar. relief is the same. Yes. Yeah, the same. It's yeah. sea level to 6,000 instead of 4,000, 10,000. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, uh, when the I majesty did that, is there. what's that? The majesty is still there. Yeah. 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 Like when I did that, um, that, that hundred miler in the whites, like the climb, from Crawford Notch up to Washington on the AT is, is brutal. I mean, there's, there's some undulation to it, but it's uh, top of the AT is at like six, two, and you start at like a thousand and with like 2000 feet of eleva- elevation change, it's like 7,000 feet and 12 miles, you know, just brutal. <laughs> I mean, I was able that hundred miler, um, hundred miles on the AT in the whites, like with no like out and backs and peak tagging and everything was just as it is, is, is 34,000 feet of gain. Like you don't have to do anything extra. So about um, what 60, 70, 70 grand of total change. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And it like, that's, that is like, that's the artery and what you're getting. And like, you could tack on extra stuff and you could easily make a hundred miler on trail, probably without even repeating any stuff and like crack 50,000 feet of gain, which is just, which is just absurd. So there are a couple race directors, I think in like the Finger Lakes region of uh, New York yeah. that do a great job of representing that scene. Um, but I don't think like, and again, I've never, I've only seen the course, so I can't say anything about the event. I've never thought that like the Vermont 100, which I think a lot of people might yeah. be familiar with when they think of New England. I don't think that that is representative at all 
of no. what is possible in that area. Um, I think in, there's, in there, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I think Vermont 100 has about 16,000 feet of gain and it's, it's a lot of fire road. Lot and of I think road. possibly that might just be informed by like what's on the West coast. You know, they, you know, who know, like, I mean, I think some of it's protections, but I think some of it is, um, Hey, look like, you know, the people want to race runnable courses. You know, yeah. if you want to have a big race in the U S it's, it's usually a, a runnable course. Um, and so I think that kind of like informs the scene on the East coast, whereas like the East coast should stick to, you know, what the East coast does best, which is like super technical, technical trails. I think Manitou's revenge yes. um, in the Catskills, like 54 miles. And I think it's got 15,000 feet of gain. That looks like a pretty good one. Like half of it's on the devil's path. Um, yep. So in a recent Instagram post, you, you kind of uh, had a little uh, thought on why uh, American males have historically underperformed yeah. at UTMB, especially in recent years. And I think it actually kind of ties into the current state of affairs in the U.S. and where people are yeah. training. And also this angle you've mentioned um, of as the sport matures more, athletes need to be more specialized. They need yeah, to like go yeah, all in absolutely. on a particular geography, on a particular distance to be successful. And that's what yeah, happens yeah. when any sport matures. Yeah. So I think we saw this summer, you know, a bunch of American athletes try to do a double uh, with Western States and TMB. Yeah. And those races are farther apart than Western States and hard rock. And, uh, you know, Francois was able, I think there was, there was, there was a female athlete, I think, who, who was also able to, my crazy, plays high at Hard Rock, plays yes. high at UTMB. Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, I'll, I'll add it to the show notes. For, uh, yeah. Francois was able, to, was able to pull that double off at least. And then um, on a shorter timeline than Western States and, and UTMB. And I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but I think it's just because those races are just, are just more similar, very similar uh, vertical, vertical gain. Um, mm. Both are you know, hard rock, I think is, is less runnable than, than UTMB is, but I think yep. kind of, kind of similar, a lot of, a lot of single yep. tracks and yep. some grassy, some grassy bits and some steeper stuff. Um, and so I think I, I personally, I follow a lot of climbing culture. Uh, I, I suck at climbing, but uh, for some reason, I've always just been very drawn, very drawn to climbing. And oh, I love um, the Alpinist. I I'm not a climber either. And I subscribe to it. Like, I just love that culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, a, a fantastic podcast to listen to, especially for trail runners is climbing gold. Climbing um, gold. Okay. Alex Honnold and, uh, hosts it with Fitz Cahal, uh, Fitz, um, I guess produces or, you know, runs the, uh, the dirtbag diary podcast mm. and, um, it's fantastic. And their big focus is on kind of on the evolution of climbing. Uh, and you can kind of think the evolution from when your top climbers were, you know, they were, they were bouldering, maybe some, they were trad climbing, they were maybe doing some alpine climbing, they were sport climbing, they were competing, they were kind of all over the map. And then gradually, people started getting more kind of like focused, you know, you had your sport climbers, which is bolted climbing, you had your trad climbers, you know, with your traditional kind of protection and your out, you're kind of alpinist and you had your boulderers. And now it's getting even more kind of separated out, whereas this, the competition scene is breaking off. And they're just basically gym climbing. They're just like climbing plastic and you have your, then you have your kind of your outdoor kind of sport climber com competitors. So um, just because the sport has just gotten so enormously competitive. And if you're climbing outdoors and you're kind of dealing with all the factors that apply to climbing outdoors, you can't then, you know, compete on the, on the indoor, on the competition scene. Um, 
and just things have just gotten so focused and uh, incredibly. And then also likewise with boulders, you know, you're seeing guys who are, who are top boulders who, who don't, you know, sport climb all that much, you know, they're just focusing on these super short, uh, really athletic, really challenging, you know, short movements. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that's going to happen increasingly in trail running. We're already seeing, you're already seeing athletes, you know, starting to kind of like break out and focus on longer distances, focusing on shorter distances. Um, I think an athlete, you know, kind of like Max King, I think it's going to become increasingly rare where they're able to kind of run super well, Yep. across the board at all these different distances. And I think also um, you're going to see the same thing with, with steep and more technical races. You see athletes kind of specialize in running steeper, running more technical races and athletes specializing in running more runnable stuff. Um, the way it is right now, the scene in the U.S., especially the major competition circuit is much more much more runnable, a little bit flatter. Um, you know, races like Black Canyon and Western states, way too cool. I mean, those are all extremely runnable courses. Mm. Uh, and then in Europe, especially like on the sky racing scene, way more technical. Um, races like UTMB, like we don't have really any hundred, I mean, any, we have a couple hundred milers in the US that exceed 30,000 feet of gain. Um, hard Rock, um, Ure, I, Ure, I think you Ray, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but that's, that's kind of it. Whereas, uh, you know, the diagonal Dave foo, yeah. what, what Dylan just did, um, you know, that's exceeds, uh, exceeds, uh, 10,000 is right around 10,000 meters, UTMB right around 10,000 meters. Um, I'm blanking, but a lot of these, a lot of the, and then certainly once you get down to the shorter races, you know, way, way higher vert, um, out in Europe. Uh, so, you know, if us athletes want to race on that European scene, I think they have to just start focusing on, on steeper races and more technical stuff. And I think it, I think it honestly benefits a slightly different history and body type. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Jim, uh, is like incredible. And I think we'll, we'll always surprise, uh, yes. at, you know, at least me by, you know, the, how, how, you know, his incredible ability to perform. I think um, he wins UTMB one day once he gets this thread we're talking about becoming more of a specialist for a particular year, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and certainly, you know, I, I don't think this is anything new to him. I mean, he's out and he trains out in the San Juans for, for, for hard rock. You know, he put in that huge block a couple of years it's ago, two so weeks after Western, you know, like he needed to be just doing that exclusively. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, he, he, he probably knows that. Um, and uh, well, the one yeah. thing I wanted to add there is the reference to climbing and how, that sport has become more specialized as it matures. And like, I just think I, I look to road running, for example, you don't hear marathoners just say, I'm a road runner. You hear them say I'm a marathoner yes, because the yeah, sport has yeah, gotten so yeah. specialized to say you're a road runner is too broad. Yeah. They're not just, you know, hopping between events. Like, I think that one sign of maturity in our sport is when you stop hearing athletes say, I'm just an ultra runner. You're going to hear them say yeah. I'm a 50 K mountain runner. I'm a hundred K yeah. road guy. I don't know how far away we are from that, but that to me is a sign of maturity in the sport. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think another just totally random, but another, another kind of aspect of that tech, that specificity is, is like Western States is like a relatively, it's a much shorter race than UTMB yes. is. Yes. Um, you know, and that's, that's, I think if there was a race that was very similar, if Western States was instead like the Western States 140 and it took, 
you know, 20 hours for the top athletes to complete. Yeah. I think that would be almost be a better anal- that would be a better training objective for UTMB just because it's just more time out there. It's more time for things to gone wrong. It's more time uh, that you have to have your nutrition dialed. Um, and at UTMB, it's more time for the weather to get really bad. And I know Western States, you, I really could not imagine worse weather than Western States. It being so hot. Yeah. Um, but UTMB, it seems like they always deal with like snow, sleet, rain, high winds, poor visibility yep. and weird you know, start time, weird start time. And to many, you know, running at night and to many extents, like if you are just kind of like this, you know, racehorse, um, who's, uh, you know, racing these, these courses that are, you know, getting done during the daytime, less than, less than, you know, 15, 16, 17 hours long. Um, and you, that UTMB experience, I think it's just like that much longer. It's like, it makes a, makes a big difference. Um, let's, let's pivot here to the FKT scene. We, we touched on it at the beginning of the pod. Yeah. You said that this could be the future of competition in the U S yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about that. Um, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like pretty passionate about this. Cause like, I find it very, uh, I think sad is the best word where like us athletes have to go to Europe to race something that's like steep and technical. The United States has so many mountains, like the Sierra alone is just like absolutely insane. People should not have to go to UTMB to race like a steep mountain hundred miler. And granted, like there are a ton of reasons to go to UTMB. That's just like that's not just to race steep, steep, a steep mountain race. I think the biggest problem with the U S is just like anything that's like super steep and mountainous, um, heavily protected. And so a traditional race is just, it's just not going to happen there. Um, and so my big thing is, uh, I think, I think FKTs and kind of more disaggregated racing could be huge because it opens up some of these protected lands, uh, for racing, especially when the sport is just you know, kind of in its infancy, like I think ultra and trail running is the United States, um, where competition is kind of diluted and athletes are always going for a course record. Um, this allows, I mean, this is the comp- level of competition is, is basically the same. Um, and I think from a financial standpoint, I, I like it because, uh, it's free. Um, people don't have to pay and athletes can organize their season around FKTs. Like you could sit down right now and plan FKTs you're going to do in three years. Whereas I would love to race in hard rock, but I don't have, you know, the time, the interest, you know, the, the, my moment in the sport, I feel like is, is, is so fleeting when you're peaking, even if it is 10 years long, like it could take seven, eight years to get into hard rock. It's like, there's, it's just like, crazy. And especially when, um, locals who kind of live there and people who have, uh, the ability to go and, and volunteer at the course kind of have it unlocked. So it seems like a fantastic race. I've never been, but it's just like not a sustainable and like logical and realistic way for athletes to compete. Well, two things, two things there I want to comment on. The first is I've heard a lot of Euro athletes that come over here to do our races say that the first thing that they notice is the absolute wildness of the West and just how expansive it is, how far removed it is from major metro areas. There's this quote that I come back to a lot in a lot of my work, and it goes something like, escape competition through authenticity. Nobody is better at being you than you. And I feel like if we're going to build a brand in the US, maybe we should just lean on what we're already good at, which is these opportunities for FKTs, because if we don't, we're going to exclude some of the best areas in the country, like the Northeast, 
like parts yeah. of the Sierra. Um, and people are already commenting on how this is part of our brand. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this idea uh, where kind of like a, the, the, the big problem is with FKTs is they're just, they're, in my opinion, there's just not enough rules for them in, in some, in some ways, there's just not enough rules for them to really kind of like supplement racing in, entirely. And then the other issue is um, they've just like, it's not, the competition just isn't concentrated enough. Like there's just so many FKTs out there, especially to someone just like walking into the sport. Like you right. have to, you have to be in the sport for years to kind of figure out what matters and what doesn't. So I kind of have this idea of like breaking like a site that like breaks the US up into you know, kind of based on the quality and the amount of trail running there, uh, breaks it up into different regions and then kind of like establishes like a race series in each area. So, you know, to start, it could even, you could even think about it as like, I think it could go much more granular than this, but like you could just start, it could just be like, you know, the mountain, mountain West, you know, or the, the West, you know, central mountains, yeah. And then like, you know, I don't know what, no offense to everyone living in the Midwest and the South. I mean, I lived in Virginia for a long time, but like lump the Midwest and the South together, sorry. And then the Northeast and you could establish like trail marathon, trail 50 miler, trail hundred miler in each area, you know, lay out some basic ground rules. And I then like what uh, Jared Campbell's done with, exactly. with, uh, with yeah. like the Wasatch area. Yeah. Yeah. So Jared Campbell has like Millwood 100 in the world. He's got like a landing page for each one of these. Yep. Uh, courses that he set up everybody who races it can send their like trip report and everything to him yep um and then he posts it and he breaks out you know who's the fastest i mean i think it would be i'm envisioning something a little bit more um you know a little bit more robust than that whereas like hey look like you can go and you can rank you could break people out everybody who's ever finished it by you know the time they finished you could rank it out by age group by gender um and uh and have like rules for each race that are, are very similar, each effort that are very similar um, to, to a race as far as like where you can get aid. You know, a lot of this would just be on kind of the, the honor system kind of doing it properly. I think all attempts would have to be public that way. You know, people can go out and, and audit, you know, certainly someone who's like very competitive, you know, people could just go out and just show up on the course and just, and kind of see what's up. And then the difference, what is different between this and, and FKTs so number one, it would be controlled. So there'll only be a couple races in each region. Um, number two, there would be uh, rules. And then I'm blanking on what the other. Um, and then number three, I would love to structure them so they could be raced like races. So there are ample aid opportunities. So that way you could take a time that you ran on some 50 miler and you can reasonably compare it to other 50s where it's not just like an unsupported loop, you know, in the back country entirely. Um, I was granted, I was trying to, you know, I love up in Washington and yeah. uh, out in the Sierra and these areas are just so remote. It just becomes really, really tricky to get aid access. So it's like really easy to draw like a really steep hundred miler in the Sierra, but it's really hard to draw that if you're trying to get aid every 15 miles, it's like, you know, near impossible. Um, so I when think you, when you, when you sent me that info, I almost, I was like, dude, I got to send this out to the rest of the world. Be like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, we have to, <laughs> the logistics aren't quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's tricky. Um, and then the other problem is like out West, like a lot of the trails 
just go between the peaks. And so like, if you really want to start stacking vert and tagging the tops of mountains, at least in the Sierra, um, it's going to be off trail. It's going to be some scrambling that's involved, which I think is, is totally awesome. Um, I think the biggest thing with this is like, I can't even build out, you know, what I want to do race wise in a couple of months. Like you just never know what training opportunities are going to present themselves. You never know just how you're going to feel. Um, and you, you know, you see this with UTMB, it's like a lot of us runners are like, well, uh, I signed up. I don't feel great. I got into the race. Who knows when this is going to happen again? I feel like I have to go and race. And then they, they DNF. Um, and then you probably have other athletes that are like, you know, shit, I, I could have done real well in UTMB, but I'm just, I'm just not, I'm just not there. I didn't do the qualifying races. I didn't go through all the BS, you know, with like sacred stones or whatever they're coming up with. Um, so racing when you're ready, when things are clicking, that's huge. That's what this affords. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and further, it just makes it, you know, accessible to, to anyone at any price point to go out and race at any time, which I think is, uh, I think is, is pretty cool. Um, I mentioned, I mentioned, uh, Joey Campanelli earlier on the podcast. I think he has like the Nolan's FKT and a couple other cool yeah, ones. Yeah, and yeah. he's been saying this for years. I'm like, dude, why don't you enter into these hundred mile races? He's like, well, because I want to run when I'm ready to run yes, and like yeah. some random date in the, in the future doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to go when things are clicking. And yeah, I don't know if I ever truly appreciated that until I talked to you and you had the same opinion. I'm like now, nah, yep. That, that validated it. Yeah. Joey's Joey's a man. And, Ooh, and then the other thing is, is like, um, <laughs> I don't like if you, <laughs> I've never been to UTMB, but I was reading or no, I was talking, uh, Hillary McCloy, Andrew's, uh, girlfriend. I was talking to her and she was talking about OCC talking about like, you know, race starts at, I, I, I think this was OCC. Uh, I think I was talking to her. It was like race starts at seven, you know, you get on a bus at 2am, you know, it takes you to somewhere else at 3am. It's like, my God, like, you know, there's 10 billion people. It's like, I don't want to, you know, huge lines on like all the climbs, huge bottlenecks. It's like, I don't want to deal with that. Personally, I don't even want to deal with like a 6 p.m. start for UTMB. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just all this other, all this other kind of like BS that you can kind of strip away. It's like, personally, um, I do, I do like the community. I do like, you know, races kind of. Um, but it's like the biggest thing for me is like, I like trail running because I love being out there and just hiking is too boring. And this is just like faster than hiking. And I can like connect places on the map, which I think is just so cool. And just like travel through the mountains and 99% of the time I run entirely by myself. And I think that's, that's the best part. I don't need a ton of other people around me to have a race experience. Well, you said, you said this, I thought really eloquently earlier in the show. And that is that technology is just on a day-to-day basis, improving its ability to allow people to compete remotely, like better than ever yeah. before. And that's yeah. disrupting this whole model. And, you know, maybe Strava has a better role to play with it in the future. These websites you're talking about do I'm excited. And one of the I want to say is I just had this guy, Matt Taylor from Tracksmith on the podcast. And I asked him what he thinks the key to growing the sport of mountain running is. And he actually thinks that it is, it's the FKT because a lot of people have grown up in this sort of like Guinness book of world records culture where they can understand the concept of a fastest known time in the context of that whole framing. And I think that if we want to make more people excited about the sport and uh, just understanding it better and appreciating what goes into it, I think fastest known time is a cool uh, entry point. No. And certainly, and like the, the craziest thing to me is like every race, there is a discussion during the coverage of the course record. 
um it's like something that excites Great and motivates point. people yep but it's like you know it's it's just crazy because like the if the weather isn't there it's like we're always racing on a completely different stage it's like every time we do an ultra it's 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 a little every time there's a trail race it's it's a little bit different than when it, when it was done in the past because over a longer effort you know weather and conditions and um you know in the northeast it's it's huge because it's so technical a lot of it is just it's it's honestly insane it's honestly yeah. insane how much like and it it fucking pisses me off every time i do it and like every time i race in the northeast i'm like that's it this is the long last time <laughs> because like you have to i'm trying to time it so that i have there's water and streams for me to drink out of but you know ideally the ground isn't like muddy or wet uh and the rocks aren't slippery and the temperatures are low enough and in the whites you know the wind has to be low enough and there has to be good visibility and there's just like 10 billion factors you have to juggle while uh trying to do this effort and like a race there's like a one in a million chance that those conditions are going to be good you know on the day you pick to do a race but on fkt you can pick any day or in some sort of disaggregated race you can pick any day um so i think uh this whole disaggregated racing idea, the one course that I have found that I do feel strongly about is that whites 100. Um, and I think that is, I'm 99% going to go back and race that next summer. Um, and to any other athletes out there on the hundred mile scene that are looking for something burly, but don't want to try with the whole you know, BS with UTMB, that is like a very, very worthy alternative. That is like a fantastic, fantastic route. Um, and, uh, it is, it is leagues more technical than I think any other trail, you know, competition on the planet. And, uh, it is, it is very steep. And there also are quite a few aid opportunities. There's like lots of road crossings. Um, there's places where you can stash aid and you pass through all the huts and everything. Uh, so you could get stuff out of the huts. Um, so it is, it is kind of accessible in that way too. And the, all the road crossings make it really easy to go out and kind of like test parts of the course and try it out and, you know, recon it. So one last, uh, thread I want to cover before we go into the lightning round is the FKT recently set on the white mountain hut traverse. I think that Buzz Burrell and Peter Bachwin at fastestknowntime.com, they recognize this as one of the premier FKTs in the U S for anybody that is unfamiliar. Can you just give them sort of like an advertising pitch for what is so cool about this route? What's involved, et cetera. I think, I think the Prezi is their premier. Okay. I thought it was white mountain, but but anyway, it might be, it it should be. I think it should be. No, no, it it should be. And I've, I've, uh, you know, I'm, so I am the manager for the Southeast United States and the regional editor for FKT.com. Um, and so, yeah, I could talk to Peter and Buzz about getting that changed. Having having done both of them, um, the hut traverse is is way is way better. I mean, what's cool my, about it? Yeah, so the hut traverse. So there are eight huts run by the Appalachian Mountain Club in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Yeah, um, and these huts are staffed by probably uh, you know five to seven people. I think Katie Shad um, used to be one of them. Katie Shad used to be one of them. Um, God, there was an, there was another um Hillary Hillary uh, Girardi. She's also yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I think she was also worked at a hut. Yep, she did. Yeah. She's a black um, diamond athlete, I think, maybe Scarpa. Yeah. She uh and so yeah, the Hutcherverse uh it connects the furthest 
what would it be? The furthest Northeast hut with the most Southwest hut. Um, the effort is about 45 miles, about 16,000 feet of gain. Um, and it just covers like two of the kind of like premier, most popular um, kind of coolest running areas in the whites. So that's the, the, uh, the presidential range and then the Pemi Jawasset wilderness. Yep. And unlike the Pemi loop and the Prezies, which have become like major trade routes, uh, the Hutch Reverse features a lot of terrain that's, you know, traveled much less frequently um, and kind of, you know, an opportunity to get off the beaten path while all kind of, also kind of hitting these like kind of highlight areas. Um, so I loved it because uh, the effort has a huge history of competition. If you look on the FKT page, I mean, people yep. have been racing this back to the earliest, early 20th century. Yep. Um, and then the huts are just, you know, so kind of like storied and have just like, you know, this fantastic, you know, kind of feel to them when it's like a great, great vibe. Um, and uh, it's just a lot of fun because the, the people who work at the huts are, you know, they're, they, they do a hut traverse, you know, it's like a big kind of rite of passage, I think, for people who work yep. at the huts doing a hut yep. traverse, so they do them a lot. So uh, they're very appreciative, I think, of anybody who, um, or very, very nice to anyone who does, does a hut traverse. So they, when I was training it a lot, you know, I, I got to know a lot of the, the hut crew, which was, which was a lot of fun. Um, there's great names too, like Lake of the clouds and Zealand yeah. falls and all the, I mean, there's just, it's got some great lore to it and they branded it well. Yeah. So the, the, the traverse goes from the Carter notch hut. Carter, uh, Carter notch. Is, that's my favorite one. Yeah. That's in the wildcat absolutely. range there. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really cool. And that, and I highly recommend to anyone doing it, even if they're just doing it uh, for funsies to sleep. I mean, it's like a billion dollars to sleep at one of these huts. It's like 120 bucks or something ridiculous. I mean, oh, dude, was, I slept on the floor when I was a through hiker a couple of years back. I just slept, they, I like, oh, slept really? on the floor and like, okay, you can sleep here tonight. I just like slept like underneath like the kitchen counter or something. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. It's like 120 bucks or something ridiculous, but it, it includes is, yeah. breakfast and dinner. And it's like, I mean, it's going to like benefit like an organization that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, but yeah, sleeping at the, I slept at one of the, you know, at the Carter notch hut the night before. And then I, uh, I ran it through to lonesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's the, I mean, having done, having run like quite a few places in the U S having done like rim to rim to rim on the grand Canyon, um, just kind of run, you know, all over the, the Sierra and, uh, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and Colorado, I think this is personally, um, the best route, the best like day FKT, like in the U S like it is, it is just fantastic given the ground it covers the history and just like the, the great, the great running and the running is, is so varied. Like there are sections that are kind of flowy and through the forest and, you know, super low down. And then there's sections that are above tree line and are super exposed and are super yeah. rocky and involve like a little bit of scrambling and stuff. So, and then also for about 40% of the route, you're on the AT, which I always think is, is pretty fun. Um, so yeah. Oh Yeah. Well, I, I like to prop up a lot of these Northeast FKT efforts when I can. And that one is, that's an FKT that transcends any region, as I think you can attest to. It's, yeah. it's one of the coolest. Yeah. And, and if anybody wants to feel the, uh, the on little documentary that they shot with um, German show notes, yeah. Stranger uh, running with Katie Scheid is like fantastic for Katie's FKT. Yep. Um, and Katie still has the, the female FKT up there. So. Yeah. Let's get into this lightning round here. We get a little bit philosophical, if you don't mind. Oh, geez. Um, I'm yeah. curious if you've come across any books, movies, podcasts, or songs recently that 
you've consumed that have changed the way you think? Um, God, uh, I mean, one of, one of my favorite books, uh, that I've ever read, um, pretty recently, not, not really a lot of like the stuff I consume is, is climbing related. Okay. Um, and beyond the mountain by Steve house is like a, is a fantastic book, uh, that I really highly recommend anybody, anybody reading. And it's like a lot, it's a like Steve house was like, is one of the greatest American alpinists of all time from Salt Lake like, city. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was very big in like the two thousands. Um, his like biggest kind of like mountain ascent, I think most kind of like prominent was he climbed this, uh, unclimbed, uh, face, this new route on, uh, Naga Parba on an 8,000 meter peak in, in Pakistan in the car quorum. Um, but his book beyond the mountain is fantastic because it, it, it doesn't just deal with, it's not just a climbing book. It kind of deals a lot about, uh, kind of grief and loss in the climbing community and him kind of trying to find himself and his kind of like purpose in climbing. Um, and that's, that's a fantastic one. I think that more people should, should check out. And then as far as, as far as, far as podcasts, I listen to all this, so a lot of climbing stuff. Um, and people just getting into kind of like climbing podcasts. I think climbing gold is a super, super accessible one. Cause it's so well-produced and it's definitely marketed to non-climbers and it's kind of like written for non-climbers. So it's very accessible if you're just kind of getting into it. Um, and then a bit, uh, a uh, bit, a bit different from that. Uh, the Enorma cast uh, with Chris Caluse is like a very like climbers podcast. Um, but it's a lot of fun because uh, it's a very just like casual conversations between Chris and just different climbers. And uh, it's like, not just like pure climbing. It's uh it's, it's pretty accessible and it's, it's super entertaining to listen to. So that's, that's one of my favorites. Um and then there's just like a number of other good climbing podcasts out there. The cutting, the cutting edge is made by the American Alpine journal um, is pretty good. Um, trying to think of some other ones. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, climbing has been a huge theme in this episode. And yeah. I'm wondering if climbers are so cool because they're so close to death all the time. No, I think them so. Like more comfortable yes. in their own skin. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I think just like the danger that comes with climbing just like really shapes their culture. Yeah. Um, and it's personally, it's, it's too dangerous for me. Like I just, too. yeah. Like I, I, I was, I was climbing. I mean, I'm, I'm into like schemo. I love, I enjoy, I enjoy like light mountaineering. I love skiing. Um, and, uh, I've got a ton of climbing gear that doesn't really get a lot of use because, uh, for me, it's like, a leader fall and like breaking my ankles is like, you know, losing a big part of my season. So I just, I just can't do it. And I, I did one of like, I did a, a race and effort down in Virginia. And then the next day, my buddy and I went, went climbing. And like, I was literally like, like a five, three leading. And I was like shaking so bad. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, this is just not going to work. <laughs> um, yeah. Are there last question? And then we'll, uh, we'll ask where people can find you on social. Um, are there any current or historical athletes in the endurance community that aren't on Strava or couldn't have been on Strava that you wish you could see the training logs for? Oh my God. I have, I have no clue. I have, I have absolutely no idea. I'd have to, I'd have to think about that for a while. Um, I would certainly love to see like, yeah. I mean, my mind just like goes to, to Alpinists and to like, you know, people who are, you know, climbing huge, like, you know, Yuli Steck 
uh, yes. you, know, who, you know, Swiss. He's done some running stuff too. Yeah. He's done some running stuff. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would just love to see like, you know, his kind of his, his training data just kind of like broken out and, and presented on Strava and then kind of going back, like, you know, big kind of like mountain climbers, the 20th century, like, you know, Reinhold Messner, you know, what, what his kind of training looked like. Um, because I just love, you know, I just, I get a lot of my, a lot of my training is just kind of like vertical focused and just yeah. like, uh, I think there's a lot of, um, kind of crossover with, with mountaineers and kind of like the, the vertical that they kind of, uh, train to. And that's kind of like what also, it's just like pure vertical gain and just like, you know, hours on feet. It's like a big, some of my big training metrics. Um, so yeah, some of those like mountaineers, of the 20th century, uh, that their data would be, would be really cool to look at. Awesome. Well, dude, I, I have so enjoyed this conversation. We'll have to have you on yeah, again too, at some point in time. And I know you're on the road right now. So when you come through Salt Lake, we'll have to uh, give you the grand tour when it comes to trail running and uh, ski touring here in the, in the Wasatch. And until then, I want to make sure that listeners have a chance to find you on social and to sort of follow your journey. Where can they find you? And yeah, what do you want to uh, link them to? Uh, yeah. So I'm on, I'm on Instagram and on Strava. Uh, both of them. My name is just Jack Kenzel. I mean, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes, but K-U-E-N-Z-L-E. Yep. Awesome, man. Well, hey, thanks again. And until next time. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, thanks, dude. I really appreciate it. Good stuff. I am looking forward to having Jack on again at some point in the future. He's a great guest, easy to talk to, felt like we were on a run together. Um, Jack, if you're listening, if you're coming through Salt Lake, uh, hit me up. We will give you the grand tour, both from a running standpoint and skiing standpoint. For listeners, I will link to Jack's Instagram in this week's newsletter. I'll do the same for a couple pieces of content he mentioned as well. The first is uh, on running's video of Katie Scheid setting the women's FKT on the Hut Traverse the Climbing Gold podcast with Alex Honnold and Steve House's book, Beyond the Mountain. I just actually ordered that on Amazon. I'm excited to read it. And uh, before you go, before we go, I should say, subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, I think you're going to like it. At least give it a try. If you don't, you can always smash that unsubscribe button. It'll break my heart, but you know, I understand. Uh, to do the subscription, go to finnmelanson.com, F-I-N-N-M-E-L-A-N-S-O-N.com. There's a big call to action there to subscribe. Just submit your email address and you'll start getting it on Sunday nights. And then in your, in your podcast player, whether it's Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, whatever, Pandora, leave a rating and a review if you can. It really helps with discoverability. As I mentioned in the top of the show, we don't run ads. And uh, this is the way for people to discover us. Until next time, thanks for listening.